All right, let's go Ruth 19, or Ruth 3, Ruth 3. So now I know what it's like when I throw y'all into the mixer. I forget things. Um, so today is actually Jack's last Sunday here. See, we love you. <laughs> and so when presented with the opportunity to either skip the reading assignment I gave him, or him to never be able to do it. Well, we'll just make it awkward. All right. Ruth chapter 3. We're going to spend a little bit of time uh, at the end of our service. Uh, he doesn't know this, but I'm going to call them up here awkwardly, and we're all going to pray for him and send him out well and all that kind of stuff. So it'll be great. Uh, Ruth chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in, about, and around your life to be shaped by that knowing of him. And if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, like just do the quick math in your head, like, like be digging into the scriptures, and he's going to use it for his purposes and for your good, for his glory, and all those kinds of things, and it's a good day. All right, so uh, welcome to week number seven seven of our attempt to walk through the book of Ruth together. And if you're thinking, I didn't know Ruth had seven weeks in her. I'm just as surprised as you are. All right? um, I told you week one that I'm one of the guilty ones who often overlooks and undersells the book of Ruth. All right? I, I'm there. All right? And so uh, walking into the series, trying to, to figure out if this is what we were going to do and, and make plans for this stuff, I was like, ah, there's no way. There's no way. Well, now we're seven weeks in, and well, as, as we frequently found here, God is good to us despite my ineptitude. So um, we will just press along. Uh, if you're new here, if you're not familiar with the story of Ruth, uh, the book of Ruth is all about redemption. All right? That's the key theme, running over and over and over again. Redemption. Redemption out of poverty. Redemption out of a bitterness towards God. Uh, redemption out of loneliness and isolation. And even redemption out of striving. All right? uh, we're, we're getting to this, this time of rest that we're seeing all throughout the scriptures. And so uh, Naomi and her foreign daughter-in-law, Ruth, uh, they are both widows. And they're both trying to pick up all the pieces. All right? And by this point in the story, they've moved back to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem uh, from the land of Moab. Uh, uh, and, and so they've been uh, in town for probably a month or two by this point, just kind of eking out a living uh, by going out to the fields every day and gleaning. Ruth's been going out to the fields. Naomi hasn't. Uh, but uh, she's been going out to gather grain that has been left behind by the harvesters. That's what gleaning is. Right? And Ruth has been raking it in. Absolutely raking it in uh, because of not only her work ethic, she's diligent, she's striving, she's doing all the things that you kind of expect somebody who's in need to, to kind of get up and go help themselves in some ways. But in addition to that, Boaz has been extravagantly generous. He set the ball on the tee for her to crush it. Naomi's relative Boaz, I might add. See, while the law required Boaz to leave the edges of the field unharvested so that the poor could gather food for themselves, what we actually see Boaz do was make it incredibly easy for Ruth to gather far more than what was required. 
She comes home each day, not only with plenty to eat, but even plenty to sell. And so she's beginning to, to make a life for her and Naomi. Now, now is, is, is Boaz's generosity, is that, is that just because, you know, he's like an especially generous guy? Is he, is he trying to be extra pious and score some brownie points with God? Who, no one would ever do something like that, right? Uh, is it because, you know, he, he's kind of got eyes for Ruth, thinks he's kind of cute, and that's the best way he knows how to flirt? What is it? What, what, what's causing this? Honestly, it's probably a mixture of all the above. There's a lot of things going on here, but whatever Boaz's motive is, his generosity is used by God to draw some really, really good things out of these women. He's pulling some good stuff out of them. It pulls Naomi out of her depression and self-loathing. And it begins to, it seems, pull Ruth out of her period of mourning over the death of her husband. Last week, we saw... Naomi begin to act like a Jewish mom once again. There's a little bit of a, uh, of a giddy-up in her step, and she's excited about something for once. She says, Ruth, my daughter, I've got a plan to provide rest for you. Let's get you cleaned up. Let's get you cleaned up. She instructs Ruth to bathe, anoint her head, go down to the threshing floor in the middle of the night so that she and Boaz can have a DTR, a define the relationship conversation. And so the act of bathing and changing her clothes, it would have been a visual cue uh, to everyone else in their culture that Ruth was now ready to move on and marry once again. And that's where we left things off last week, right? That, that's where we left the story, instructions to go. Naomi's got an idea. She, she gives Ruth the plan for that idea. And Ruth is to go and do all of these things and then let Boaz take it from there, we're told, right? That's, how, that's how, where we left things off last week. So you ready to see how old Boaz responds? Verse 6. Ruth chapter 3, verse 6. So she, that's, that's Ruth, she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Verse 8, at midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Let's call time out there. All right, so... Ruth follows Naomi's instructions mostly to a T. We're going to get to in just a little bit how she breaks away from that, those instructions in a second. But, uh, but Ruth takes a bath. She puts on the perfumed oil. She sneaks down to the threshing floor and she waits, right? Boaz eats a good meal. He's got a little bit of alcohol in him. The man is ready for bed, all right? It, it's been a good day for Boaz. We're told that his heart was merry. So Boaz is in a good place right now. All right, that's what we're seeing. Ruth slips in, she exposes his feet, and lays down waiting for Boaz to stir. And ding, 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 Naomi's plan appears to work to a T. Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night, works like a charm. But we're told that he's startled awake. He doesn't, he doesn't just groggily go, hey, what's going on? He pops up. He's startled awake. So there's a moment of tension here, right? Like everybody's sleeping heavy because of the feast. But you know what's a good way to ruin that? Boaz to start shouting. So there's a little moment of tension here. It's a good way to ruin that, that quiet evening. And so things almost fall apart. But Boaz apparently 
seems to have more lucidity than I normally do when it's in the middle of the night. You can ask Katie. Like, once I go to sleep, I'm good for nothing, right? But instead of shouting, instead of overreacting, Boaz has the presence of mind to simply ask, who are you? Who are you? And Ruth gives him an answer. She says, I'm Ruth, your servant. Now, we've got to talk about that word servant because it's a word that specifically means made servant. So why, why is that a big deal? Why is that important? Well, it's because it's not a word that Ruth has used yet in this story. Now, she's called herself a servant over and over and over and over again by this point in the story, but she's never used this Hebrew word. Back in chapter 2, uh, in Ruth and Boaz's first conversation, Ruth calls herself a servant more than once in that, in that conversation, uh, but the word that she uses chapter 2 means more of a slave. A slave. She also goes out of her way in that first conversation to over and over again describe herself as a foreigner. So she sees herself as an outsider and on the lowest rung of the ladder. But by the time we get to chapter 3, and I would argue that it's been at least a month, maybe two months of Ruth continuing to press into this community. By the time we get to the second conversation between Ruth and Boaz, she's dropped the I'm just a foreigner routine. And now she's identifying herself as a maidservant of Boaz. Maidservants were a considerable step up on the social ladder. They were more like family members than property. They enjoyed all the privileges of an Israelite household. They were also eligible for marriage. Um, in the story of Jacob, we learn that the maidservant can give you an heir. Four of Jacob's 12 sons come from Bilhah and Zilpah, his maidservants. They're full-fledged heirs. And so things are shifting, we see, in how Ruth sees herself in this community, sees herself in relation to Boaz. She's still full of humility. She's still postured towards honoring others, but there's a growing confidence in her, right? We've, we're not where we were. We've come forward a little bit. And so as she continues to press in, she's, she's no longer just an outsider. She's becoming a part of this community, and she sees herself now as becoming a part of this family. That's not all that Ruth says. She's not, she doesn't merely identify herself. She goes on from there. She follows that up by saying, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And it's here that Ruth breaks away from Naomi's articulated plan. She was told to you know, get Boaz to wake up in the middle of the night and let him take it from there, right? Yeah, she doesn't. <laughs> what, what Ruth just said wasn't a let Boaz take it there from there kind of action. Ruth's humble initiative, Ruth's humble initiative kind of shines through yet again, once again, uh, as she steps beyond what Naomi explicitly tells her to do. And amazingly, it shines through on a couple of incredibly wonderful layers. All right. Um, for one, spread your wings is a callback to their previous conversation, if you don't remember it. In fact, she quotes Boaz's own words back to him. In chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz publicly wishes for the Lord to repay Ruth's kindness because she has sought refuge under God's wings. 
I told you then that even as he was speaking those words, Boaz was already beginning to act as the fulfillment of all of that wish in a material way, right? And now in the middle of the night, Ruth is boldly and humbly asking Boaz to be the fulfillment of that wish in all the immaterial ways as well. How? Well, that's the second wonderful layer going on here. Another way of translating the Hebrew here is to say, spread your garment over your servant. Which anyone in that culture, anyone in the original audience of this story, would have immediately heard and understood as a marriage proposal. Hey guys, Ruth just proposed to Boaz. How cosmopolitan. Now see, for all the flack that modern rom-coms, I think, rightly deserve about their cheesy writing, one of the things that they actually do pretty well is, is recall things from earlier in a story and give it payoff later. That's one of the things they actually do pretty well. And here, um, the story of Ruth gives us an incredibly high-caliber payoff. An incredibly high-caliber one. It says, oh, you want, you want God to cover me with his wings, huh? All right, well, why don't you act like those wings yourself, mister? I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings. Ruth humbly and boldly asks Boaz to be the fulfillment of all the good things that he wants God to do for her. Step up to the plate. It's your turn. Do you ready to see how old Boaz responds to such a request? Verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, for you've made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. All right, let's call time out there. And so the answer, the answer is that Boaz is blown away. He goes, whoa. He's absolutely blown over by this. We, we've already pointed at, to this verse, uh, verse 10 there, a couple of times now throughout the series in order to help us better understand something that happened previously in the story. Uh, we talked uh, last week about the age gap uh, that it shows us between Ruth and Boaz. R- R- Ruth could, could have pursued a new husband from among the single men in her, of her own age, uh, of, you know, just a peer group. And, and so not a soul in Bethlehem would have been upset at her for doing exactly that. Like nobody's complaining. That. Boaz is apparently a little bit older. He's not the natural choice for all the matchmakers in Bethlehem. All right, nobody's thinking Boaz. So, so why did Ruth then just propose? Well, the answer, the very real answer is that Boaz can bring redemption not only to Ruth, but redemption and healing to Naomi as well. And saying that out loud, I can feel the dissonance in the room. Like, lest you be mistaken, this isn't a moment where everybody's looking around going, well, you know the heart wants what the heart wants. What are you going to (laughs) do? I guess Boaz had something in that after all. That's not the driving purpose of this relationship. There is a very obvious layer of utilitarianism built into this relationship. 
Hear me clearly. Ruth is pursuing Boaz because of his ability to provide for both Ruth and Naomi. And I get that saying that in our culture kind of feels like we've now robbed the story of something special, doesn't it? This story is tainted by something other than raw passion? You kidding me? There's something driving their relationship other than Ruth wants to be with Boaz and Boaz wants, wants to be with Ruth? Is that allowed? In our culture, a lot of people think that's the answer. Here's the, here's the other thing, though. We're also the only culture to ever exist that feels that way. If I'm doing my math right, I think we're the only culture to ever exist that thinks that every other factor ought to be thrown to the wind whenever love is involved. Oh, but that, but that can't be true. What about stories like, you know, Romeo and Juliet, star-crossed lovers? That play ain't a comedy. A couple of teenagers decide to sneak off and get married in secret the day after they meet. And a week later, Romeo, Juliet, and four other people are all dead. What a story. Yay, romance. Now see, every other culture except for our modern Western one, it naturally understands the roles that reason and practicality play in a marriage relationship. And so that means that either... Either we are the only culture who understands how the world works, or maybe we've got a giant blind spot. Which one do you think it is? We definitely know what we're talking about, right? Boaz calls Ruth's proposal a great kindness. It's the Hebrew word hetzid. An extravagantly loyal faithfulness. Instead of chasing after something that would have kind of not been natural and easy for Ruth to chase after. Like, who would ever fault Ruth for trying to find a new husband out of her peer group? Like, nobody would argue about that. Not a soul. I'm sure there are at least a couple, at least one godly young man in Bethlehem that would have been about the same age as Ruth. Surely. She could settle down. Start a new family. What a great story. Wouldn't it glorify God to see Ruth have a happily ever after like that? I think it would. But instead of merely seeking fulfillment for herself, something she would have been well within her rights to do, Ruth instead leverages that fulfillment for the good of Naomi. And in a bold and extravagant faithful act, Ruth the Moabite calls Boaz the Israelite to be what she knows he is capable of being, the Redeemer. Ladies, we talked last week about how men are capable of showcasing the Christ-like things in you by the way they set you up for success. Here, here's your turn, all right? You have an unparalleled opportunity to speak with boldness and humility towards your husband in a way that when you do so, it lights a fire in them. Drop either the boldness or the humility, it won't work very well. It'll fall flat on its face. It won't be received the same way. But you can absolutely light a fire in them for good things if you approach them well. 
humility, and boldness. What we see here, Boaz is raring to go. He's ready. In fact, there's, there's nothing that can slow him down. He says, I will do all that you say. Why? Why? Because everybody in town knows how much of a worthy woman you are. That's why. So what does he mean by that? What, a worthy woman. What does that mean? Well, if you remember, we spent our, some time talking about it a few weeks ago. Uh, chapter 2, Boaz is called a worthy man. And so uh, we said then that that could be pointing to his physical wealth. It could just mean wealthy. It certainly does mean that in a few places that we can point to in the Old Testament. Uh, But we said a couple of weeks ago that likely it it, it means a worthiness of character more than that uh, because of who we know Boaz to be. And one of the reasons that we pointed to was because Ruth is described in the exact same way when she doesn't have any material possessions to her name. All right? So it's hard to say that Ruth is a wealthy woman when she doesn't have any wealth. So when that word is used, probably it means the same thing in both places. What we did not mention during that time, though, is just how incredibly loaded that phrase is before we even get to the book of Ruth. You understand why? You've got to understand a little bit of something about Jewish canon. The decision-making, when it comes to the ordering and which books of the Old Testament made it into the Jewish version of the Bible and what order they would be placed in, our our English Bibles take most of our ordering rules, uh, not all, but most, uh, from something called the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, all right? Um, Goes back all the way to about the 3rd century B.C. All right, the rules for our English ordering are mostly taken from a weird combination of uh, genre, mixed with chronology and putting pieces together in different ways, all right? And so that's how we structure uh, our, our, our English version of the Old Testament. But most Jewish orderings of the Old Testament have Ruth as a part of what's called the wisdom literature. So they see it as this, uh, not, not just, it's not, that doesn't make it an untrue story, but it's something that's supposed to teach us something about wisdom. And many Jewish orderings of the Old Testament have Ruth immediately following the book of Proverbs. So why why does that matter? Because the book of Proverbs ends by asking a very specific question. An excellent wife, who can find? Those two Hebrew words are the exact same two Hebrew words as worthy woman. It means exactly the same thing. Isha Hail. So the book of Proverbs asks a question about finding a good wife. And then a lot of people in Old Testament days thought it was really, really important to answer that question. And they say, see the book of Ruth. The book of Proverbs asks the question, who can, who can find an excellent wife? And, and then the book of Ruth tells us about that one time that Boaz actually found one. And the whole town sees her. Proverbs 31, 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Boaz sees it. He is ready to go. But you also know how these stories work, right? It can't just be that simple. You're not allowed to just have the happily ever after before you have some kind of conflict, right? And so in typical romance story form, it's time to introduce that conflict. And so we find that in verse 12. 
And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet, uh uh-oh, there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. All right, so we talked a couple of weeks ago about this Jewish custom of redeemers, extended family members who could step in when a family had uh, and kind of rescue things, when a family had financial problems or legal problems, those kinds of things. Uh, we also talked about how there was a proximity requirement buried to it. There was an angle to it. A closest in relation had first right to act, right? And if we're doing the math right in Leviticus 25, that ordering seems to go brother, uncle, cousin and then other family okay great so so there's a defined order so Boaz seems to be speaking to that order here he is a redeemer but he's not the closest one there's somebody closer still someone else has the first legal right to this if that guy doesn't want to act Boaz is going to act he'll swoop in But first, that other guy needs to be given the opportunity. And because we've all been conditioned by the rom-coms of our culture, everybody in this room hates that guy, right? Like, you don't know his name. You don't know anything at all about him. And you don't care. You hate fill-in-the-blank redeemer number one. Right? Everybody hates the guy. Don't act like you don't. I know better. All right. He could be the sweetest, most loving man in all of Bethlehem, and it does not matter to him. You want something bad to happen to him, all right? Makes you a bad person. All right. So Boaz introduces this mystery redeemer. He's got legal right to act before Boaz does. And again, our culture doesn't know how to process very well, but Boaz literally says, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. Come on, Boaz, where's the fight? Like, like don't you just want him to like, just throw caution to the wind and find a way to usurp this other guy, get in there first so the other guy can't act? What do you mean, let him do it? This isn't uh, one of those scenarios like in a modern rom-com where, you know, the wannabe boyfriend sees the old boyfriend come into town and give an innocuous hug that doesn't look like an innocuous hug, and so he misunderstands everything, and he runs off the mope and decides, oh, I'll just let her be happy. I'll give her what she wants. I'll stay out of the way. That's not what we're talking about here. Boaz genuinely believes that Ruth and Naomi will be in a good place if this other guy says yes. Boaz wants Ruth, but he also wants to do everything on the level. And he understands that despite what he wants, backhanded actions will not produce the result he wants to produce. So even as he comes up with a plan to step in as that redeemer for Ruth, he will not fail to honor others and fulfill the cultural expectations upon him. And church, I think God is always honored in that. Always honored in that. The Lord is glorified and the Christ-like solution is usually found when each character is seeking to honor others with their decision-making. 
over and over again. This is how life actually works. Naomi honors Ruth by pushing her towards the next natural steps in her life. And Ruth honors Boaz by seeking to have that serious conversation in private so he can't be pushed into anything. And Boaz honors Ruth by celebrating and responding with excitement to her request. And Boaz is about to honor God and his people and the other redeemer by doing things the right way. Over and over and over and over again, seeking to honor others. And he trusts that in doing so, everything will be fine. Everything will be okay. So Boaz tells Ruth that he will handle things first thing in the morning. For now, lay down and get some sleep. Look at verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. All right. So Ruth gets up while it's still dark. We're told that it's before one could recognize another. That's an early that I don't think I've ever seen, right? But it's not just because Ruth is an early riser, go-getter type, right? We're told explicitly that it's so she could slip out and head back home before people could recognize that she was at the threshing floor. She's sneaking out of there. Not only would this guard Ruth's uh, kind of reputation, but it, it's also going to guard Boaz's reputation. If, if, people, if people have reason to believe that he and Ruth are messing around, they are going to assume that Boaz is preemptively going behind this other redeemer's back. So it's not just a, 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 a tossed affair. It's, it's Boaz actually undercutting a family member on a contract. Like there's levels of problem here. So Ruth gets up before everybody else can figure out that she's there. And Boaz gives her some barley grain. She's been gleaning for several weeks by this point. Does she need barley right now? She's got plenty of barley. But Boaz sends her back with some anyways. So the question obviously is why? Some argue that it's a cover for why Ruth is out so early. Uh, you know, if she runs into anybody on the way home, she can say, oh, well, I got up early and got some barley. Uh, maybe. Some others argue that it's a sign to Naomi of Boaz's intentions. The, the task that she went, uh, sent Ruth on was fruitful. Still some others, though, uh, they, they think that there's a lot of meaning buried in that six measures, the number six there. It's possible that, that Ruth being given six measures of barley instead of seven measures of barley shows that Boaz's intent was, uh, was there, but the task wasn't completed yet. I don't know. That sounds smart. Go with that, sure. I don't know if it's true or not, but okay. Whatever it means, though, Ruth is now walking home in the dark with a bunch more barley grain, and Boaz is promising to get every single thing sorted. That's the game. We see this in verse 16. And when she came, into the, uh, and when she came to her mother-in-law, excuse me, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter 
today. All right, so Ruth makes it home. Naomi is very, very interested in how the evening went. All right, and so uh, Ruth shows off her barley, and she tells her all the juicy details. And then Naomi has one last piece of advice. What is it? Wait. This is the very last words that we get from Naomi in the book of Ruth. Wait. Wait until everything falls into its place. Rest. Boaz will settle the matter today. Chapter 3 opens with Naomi giving Ruth instructions to act boldly so that she can find rest. But chapter 3 ends with Naomi giving Ruth instructions to be patient and rest for Boaz to bring full rest to her. What a nice little poetic symmetry we have here. But Ruth isn't going to have to wait very long, right? Boaz is a motivated man. Boaz will not rest, we're told, not until it's settled. Whatever the barley Boaz gave to Ruth is supposed to mean, Naomi clearly got the message, right? It's not misunderstood. And Naomi deeply trusts Boaz's character in this matter. She knows exactly how it will play out because she knows Boaz. Apparently, Boaz is the kind of guy that when he says he'll do something, you can count that he'll do it. I like those kind of guys. I'm guessing you do too. So if Jesus is supposed to be, you know, you know like we've heard it said over and over through the series, like he's the greater and more perfect Boaz. Can we trust his character too? The answer is absolutely yes. And even well beyond that. See, Boaz is going to go do the right thing. But he still has to work his little tail off to kind of get in the angle and figure out how to actually get into the redeemer position that he wants to be in. He's got to play the game just a little bit. Uh, Can I I be honest with you? Jesus doesn't have to play the game. He doesn't have to wait for some other redeemer to say, yeah, I'm not feeling it. His work of redemption is even more decisive than Boaz's is. If If you're here this morning, and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I promise you, Jesus is both willing and, hear me, capable of settling the matter today. He can change you, and he will not rest until he does. The Bible teaches that we are all, by default, separated relationally from God from our, because of our sin, that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin, death. But the Bible also teaches that it is while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. The eternal Son of God, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute in your place to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the one who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and in faith. Repentance is a word that the Bible uses to, to describe a turning away from your sin. It's a, it's a change of mind followed by a change of action. Faith is a word that the Bible uses to, to just kind of describe turning to Jesus. It's a clinging to Him and His promises uh, uh, instead of any attempt in yourself to fix it yourself. You can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus in repentance and in faith, and I'd love to be helpful to you. I've got to play a song in a second, but 
We can, we can talk after we're done. I'm here for it. Love to help you process through what it means to actually follow him. What if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus? How can we respond? The same way we always do. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And just like so, so many times before, I think he's showing us that boldness and rest and even crazy cunning plans are all different pieces of his good sovereign rule. We do them all. Called to different ones at different times. See, our job is not to make this thing happen or to make that thing happen. Our job is to do the right thing that's right in front of us, always. And let God be God. Even in a context where secret conversations are happening in the middle of the night at the threshing floor. Even in moments where you've got to make sure to wake up and get out of there before anybody can recognize you. Even in that moment, church, we still see that the best thing to do is to seek to honor others, always. It's still to go through the proper pathways and trust that God is in control. So I think our response this week probably, or at least maybe, needs to take the shape of letting go of our naive ideas that it's up to us to fix the problem. Are you as guilty of that as I, as I am often guilty of that? That doesn't mean that action is off the table. This isn't some over-spiritualized, you know, kind of uh, call to let go and let God. That's not what we're talking about at all. God very well may be calling you to something. In fact, he very well may be calling you to get off your butt right now and go do it instead of dragging your feet any longer. Go. But there's a difference between action and control. There's a wild difference between the two. It's the clinging to control that drains you. It's clinging to control that robs you of joy. It's, cling, it's, a, it's a refusal to let God be in charge of the results that shows you what it is your heart actually is hanging on to and loves more than him. I gotta be honest with you. I, I'm not always proud of how I try to cling to my ability to get it done in the moments where I'm worried about the results. I fight harder in those moments, sometimes unfairly. I tend to buckle down and burn myself out trying to get every little thing handled by myself. I'm sure you're way better than me on that. See, sometimes I need to be told, just like Ruth, wait. Wait. Boaz will settle the matter today. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song. That's a time that we set aside each week to kind of give you space to respond to God's word. Like we, we, we kind of get how the world works. I don't know if you've paid attention to this yourself. Um, if, if this stays just a head thing, if that's all it ever is, you're going to walk out the door here in a second and you're going to get swamped, right? And you're going to get busied up by all the other things going on in your life. You're not going to apply this. And so we want to give you space to apply that. That's what this is for. That's the whole point of this moment to translate that head thing into a, a something else thing. Maybe you're here today and you need to respond in some other kind of way, whether that's by formally joining our church family or by being obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized, or maybe it's time for you to say yes to his call that he's placing on you to uh, take the gospel somewhere far away from here. I don't know what that is, but I'd love to be helpful to you anyways. However God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of Ruth. 
Thank you for examples of both bold action and calls to rest. My heart needs both. My heart needs both. I fight and I strive and I chase after the things that I think need to happen in a particular way. Quite often, that's not even close to truth. Help me hear well when you call us to rest. Father, for those who don't know you here, would you call them to yourself this morning? Settle the matter today. Open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.